0: Please pray with me. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful morning, for your creation, for your heart, for your people, and for your son, Jesus. We worship you this morning. We confess our sins and we surrender to you. We lift up this worship service to you as we graduate our fifth graders, as we share with the body how you've been moving and leading, and as Brian preaches. We ask for you to give us your eyes and heart as we each listen and participate. We want to give you glory with our worship this morning, with our response to your word, even with our inner thoughts. So we invite your spirit to move here and now. And it's in your son's name that we pray, amen. We'll turn now to our scripture reading. Um, So Brian has chosen a passage from Colossians that I'll read out of the message in preparation to hear the word preached. So chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the Master forgave you. And regardless of what else you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. And cultivate thankfulness.
1: Thank you, Christine and Carl and Becca. And, uh, let's pray together as we come to the scriptures. May the God of our Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, May you give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened that we may know what is the hope to which you've called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance of the saints, and what is the immeasurable, immeasurable greatness of your power in us who believe, according to the working of your great might, which you accomplished in Christ, when you raise him from the dead. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this week we come to the final chapter in the long process of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. Because of the length of the text, I'll be summarizing the opening scenes, for verse 13 verses, but the text will be on the screen behind me. We've discovered over the weeks that reconciliation can often be a lengthy and complex process. This is especially true when one party like Joseph has suffered betrayal and abuse. It's not simply a matter of forgive and forget. There must be a significant transformation of heart and character before people can come together. Before Joseph is willing to let his guard down, he sets up three tests to determine whether his once hateful brothers can be trusted. So the first test concerned their honesty and greed. Would they sacrifice money for the sake of a brother? The second test was designed to detest their ability to accept the inequalities in love. Would they eat freely in an atmosphere of favoritism? Well, the brothers passed both tests with flying colors And the third and final test is designed to see whether they will exhibit a sacrificial love that will place their father's interest above their own and count their brother's life as more important than their own. In the end, as Bruce Walkie writes, the brothers will collectively exhibit the values of reconciliation and become the kingdom of God, a family fit to rule the world. I think this is one of the most amazing transformations in Scripture. We begin in chapter 44 in verses 1 and 2. So the morning after the feast with his brothers, Joseph sets up this third and final test of his brother's uh, integrity. At this time, not only is money returned in their sacks for the grain, but Joseph's silver cup is placed in the sack of the youngest, the brothers probably drank wine from this cup the evening before, but later we learned it had special powers of interpreting dreams, or so Joseph claims as a way of indicting them. So at dawn, Joseph brothers leave for home, well fed and reassured, until they're paid a surprise visit by the chief steward, who overtakes them and accuses them of a crime they have no knowledge of. Feeling confused and betrayed, they protest their innocence and take upon themselves a rash vow of the death penalty for the guilty party and servitude for the rest. If you remember, this vow is a painful reminder of their father's words when Laban accused him of stealing the household idol. Little did Jacob know that Rachel was hiding the idol in her saddlebag. With the memory of her premature death still fresh, we wonder if Rachel's son will suffer a similar fate. Verse 10. Well, Joseph Stewart accepts their proposal, but he lightens the penalty from capital punishment to enslavement for the guilty and freedom for the rest. And he does this in keeping with Joseph's design to recreate the exact stage of their guilty past when the youngest was sold into slavery and the rest went free. Well, confident of their innocence, they immediately dismount, drop their sacks to the ground, and open them up for inspection. And the tension mounts as the royal inspector searches each one from the oldest to the youngest, and as he does, the brothers grow increasingly patient and angry. Finally, as he tears through Joseph, or Benjamin's sack, <clears throat> he discovers the silver chalice. They are shattered. The weight of evidence appears so strong, <clears throat> Benjamin offers no protest or explanation of his innocence. Aghast, the brothers assume the worst. But instead of denial or blame, there is corporate solidarity. As each man tears his clothing in a unified gasp of grief for his brother. Twenty two years before, only Jacob tore his clothes. Now, in oppressive silence, the brothers and their heavy laden donkeys make the forced march back to Egypt. Verse 14. Well, Judah takes the lead role among his brothers to face the music before a wrong sovereign. And when they enter Joseph's house, the brothers humbly bow to the ground before the one who holds their life in his hands. Judas, or Joseph's accusation backs them against the wall as guilty thieves who wish to steal his dreams. And for that offense, Judah offers no excuse but gives glory to God and owns up to their corporate guilt. Now here's the amazing thing. God uses a wrongful accusation for a crime they did not commit to extract a confession for an unrevealed crime they did commit. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. And I knew when I was innocent of what I was being accused of, I really wasn't innocent from an earlier event. So Judas says, "What?" Sh-, I'm sorry, verse four. Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, Judas said, "What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak, or how can we clear ourselves?" God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also, in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said. Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go to peace to your father. Well, for Judah, there's no explanation available except the hand of God orchestrating and pursuing them relentlessly for their criminal past. Judah gives voice to 22 years of unresolved guilt. God has found out the iniquity of your service. God waited 22 years to hear that. The brothers resist no more and willingly subject themselves to the Egyptian viceroy. But Joseph responds with equitable justice and refuses to hold all of them culpable, only the one whose possession the cup was found. So this will now become the ultimate test. How will the brothers respond when the life of the youngest is in jeopardy and the rest are free to walk away? Will they turn a blind eye once again and refuse to help their brother? Or will Judah take the lead again and wrestle with the monarch like he did his father? You know, challenging a parent is risky, but to challenge a monarch, that can cost you your life. So how will Judah respond what can he possibly say to change the verdict handed down from a sovereign? Well, what follows is one of the most passionate speeches in the Bible. In Genesis, it is the longest. Leopold called it one of the manliest, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by any man. For depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose, it stands unexcelled. Years ago, I was studying this text with a friend of mine who was an attorney, and he pointed out how difficult it is to reverse a judge's ruling in an ordinary court of law, even more so when the evidence of guilt appears unrefutable. And then he went on to point out that Judah conformed to the best examples taught in law school of how to present an effective case of appeals before a judge first thing Judah does is to step forward and initiate his argument with Joseph. This takes courage, but he does so humbly to honor his judge. Once he gets a hearing, Judah makes his argument in three parts. First, to gain credibility, he accurately reviews the facts of the case. Second, he shares the terrible consequences Benjamin's enslavement will have on their father. If Jude is not able to take Benjamin safely home, it will kill their dad. And finally, he concludes with a daring solution, and he offers himself in place of the lad. So I'm going to read his role from the message, and I'm going to take on a little Judah's thing so you can see him. Normally I'd have Chris Bunce doing this, but he's behind there in the camera and he said he couldn't come out from behind the camera and come forward and he didn't want me running the camera. (laughs) So there you are. I'll see if I can do it as good as him. So first of all, just think of the amazement of coming into the Pharaoh's court as a Jew. Who, a Jew by nature is an abomination to Egyptians and you're going to give this speech before a sovereign and your brother's life depends upon it. So that's the emotions you come with. So here's what Joseph says. Please master, may I say just one thing to you. Don't get angry, don't think I'm presumptuous. You are the same as Pharaoh, as far as I'm concerned. Your master asked us, do you have a father and a brother? And we answered honestly, we do have a father who is old and a younger brother who was born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only son left from his mother, from that mother, and his father loves him more than anything. Then you told us, bring him down here so I can see him. We told you, master, that that was impossible. The boy can't leave his father. If he leaves his father, he'll die. Then you said if your youngest brother doesn't come with you, you won't be allowed to see me. When we returned to our father, we told him everything you said to us. So when our father said, go back and buy some food, we told him flatly, we can't. The only way we can go back is if our youngest brother is with us. We aren't even allowed to see the man if our youngest brother doesn't come with us. Your servant, my father, told us, you know very well that my wife gave me two sons. One turned up missing. I concluded that he'd been ripped to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you go now and take this one and something happens to him, you'll put my old gray grieving head in the grave for sure. And now, can't you see that if I show up before your servant, my father, without the boy... The son with whom his life is bound up, the moment he realizes the boy is gone, he'll die. He'll die on the spot. He'll die of grief, and we, your servants who are standing here before who, will have killed him. We will have killed our father. And that's not all. I got my father to release the boy to show him to you by promising if I don't bring him back, I'll stand condemned before you, Father, all my life. So let me stay here as your slave and not this boy. Let the boy go back with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? Oh, please, don't make me go back and watch my father die in grief. So that's Judah. Now, That presentation is a masterpiece of legal argumentation. My attorney friend summed it up as passionate, humble, honoring, confident, credible, sincere, reasonable, self-sacrificing, and directing, meaning he suggests a a reasonable solution to break the impasse. There are three things in Judah's speech that amaze me. First, it's saturated with the language of prayer. He comes in, he bows down, he uses the terms Lord and servant throughout. Perhaps this illuminates Judah's faith, pleading to the God who stands behind the king. Thus we might think of it as Judah's impassioned plea to the God of his father for mercy. Second, in reviewing the facts with Joseph, he shows that he is a son whose interests are now governed more by his father's concerns than his own. Father frames the speech, it's used 14 times. In fact, he has such empathy for his father, he allows himself to be described as a non-son this demonstrates that Judah is no longer controlled by jealousy, but rather he allows his passions to be shaped by his father's heart, as narrow as those affections might be. I think Judas sets a very high calling for children, to be able to get beyond the love denied them in their early years, and not only to forgive their parents, but to love them unconditionally. And now we ask this monarch to be governed by the same feelings and have the same empathy for a father's heart. And third, since the father's soul is bound up in the life of the child, then Judah will do everything in his power to care for the boy, even at the expense of his own life. He is prepared to accept the worst, but he cannot bear the thought of the worst happening to the one he loves so much, which is his father. Now, if you ask, where did this newfound empathy come from? I think we're reminded that Judah intimately knows what it's like, as a dad, to lose two sons. I know many here have lost children. Grief does something to the human heart, and it makes you compassionate. And grief softened Judah's cold heart and made him a very compassionate man. And now Judah demonstrates the highest human love possible. He offers his life in exchange for his brother, and this is the first instant in the Bible. As Jesus would later remark, greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. One scholar summarizes the impact Judah's speech had on Joseph. He writes, that the sons of the hated wife should have come to terms with the father's attachment to Rachel and her children is enough to promise an end to hostilities and a fresh start. That's one thing. That the second of these children should enjoy the brother's affection is amazing. But that Judah should adduce the father's favoritism as the ground for self-sacrifice is such an irresistible proof a filial devotion that it breaks down Joseph's last offenses. And so for a third time, Joseph weeps, this time in front of his brothers. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Well, Judas' speech brings Joseph's emotions to a head where he can no longer control himself. And now that his brothers have passed his final test and demonstrated their love for their brother, Joseph reveals himself. But this is gonna be a private moment just for family, He orders everybody else out of the room so he can shed all the symbols of success that have kept the brothers out of reach. Once everyone's out of the room, he sobs, sobs uncontrollably in the presence of his brothers. His tears give free expression to 22 years of sorrow mixed with what is now renewed joy. His uncontrolled sobs were so loud that all the Egyptians heard and the news spread quickly to Pharaoh's house. Verse three. Joseph said to his brother, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near me please. They came near and he said, I am Joseph, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. For the first time in decades, Joseph is free to be himself. And he removes the Egyptian mask, two words in Hebrew, a two word bombshell tossed at his brothers. I'm Joseph. And Judas' speech has reawakened his own identity. Then he immediately wants to know about his father. Is my dad alive? But the brothers were so dismayed they can't speak. As Bruce Walkie suggests, the family is close to true intimacy, but as long as they live in fear of the one they wronged and until they allow themselves to be embraced by forgiveness, they do not talk intimately to one another. So Joseph tries to bridge the enormous distance that guilt, time, and space have created between brothers. You know, when you've been wronged by somebody and their separation, you have power over them. They don't want to see you. And it takes the wrong person to remove that distance in love to come their way. And that's what Joseph does. He gives up control of his brothers for intimacy, and it was an intimacy he longed for. So Joseph invites his brothers to come closer, since distance is preventing him from being able to speak as intimately as he wants. And as they come closer, he reintroduces introduces himself to them I'm Joseph. I'm surely a heart stopper for the brothers. And as if their memories needed a little help, he reminds them of the events that took place at their last meeting but instead of leaving them in silence and tormented by shame, he redirects their eyes to grace, to the grace and the sovereignty of God that overruled their sinful choices for good. And what follows is the theological heart of Joseph's story. It is such profound truth that the narrator puts it on a silver platter as the best gift he can give to us And thus, this is not a gift to be missed. Verse five. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Well, Joseph graciously assures his brothers that he plans them no harm, and over time he has been able to step back from his personal pain, And witnessed the hand of God working in a much larger dimensions than he'd ever imagined. Three times, he affirms, God sent him to Egypt to survive the famine that was about to occur. And though they intended to harm him, God used their actions for good. To what end? To preserve a remnant for life. A remnant on earth. Now that's going to become a very important theological term throughout the scriptures and the prophets. A remnant denotes descendants who survive a great catastrophe and who become bearers of a future hope. That's a remnant. And I'm sure after the pandemic, we will be working with the remnant. (laughs) A remnant eager to grow in God's word, an eagerness to be on fire for Jesus Christ. Well, in the process of being sent to Egypt, God has made Joseph a chief advisor like a father to Pharaoh. So this is all good news about God who not only forgives the wrongs we do, but by sovereign grace is able to transform our sin into good purposes for life, not only for the present, but also for a future hope. As Walkie writes, this truth enables him to reinterpret his narrative. We all need to reinterpret our histories. This truth enables him to reinterpret his narrative. From a worm's eye view, his narrative reads like a nightmare, a cacophony of outrageous excesses unjustly inflicted upon him. A rational conclusion is that it is all absurd and from from this perspective could have made him an existentialist, a cynic, or a nihilist. But Joseph chooses the heavenly perspective that God is working through him to bring about what is good. And this enables him to forgive and encourage his brothers to do the same. Verse 9. So hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall not dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There, I'm going to provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. So Joseph urges his brothers to make haste, return to Canaan. Tell their father the news of what God has done for Joseph. And then they're to bring their families back to Egypt where Joseph will give them prime land to settle in. And he himself will provide for their family needs during the remaining famine years. And then he says an interesting thing, verse 12. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all you have seen, hurry, bring my father down here. So Joseph drives the final point home by speaking in their own language, no longer using an interpreter. And Joseph's words are so incredible, Jacob is going to need a credible witness. And the only brother that has any character beyond reproach is Benjamin, So let him witness and testify to this. And then for a fourth time, Joseph's tears cannot be restrained and unleashes a sea of emotion. Favorite line in the story. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them and after that, his brothers talked to him. <laughs> Remember when Esau fell on Jacob's neck? <laughs> you didn't know he was going to kill him or love him. <laughs> Same scene is repeated in the prodigal son, the father. He grabs and embraces the son and falls on his neck and weeps. Well, the scene closes with tears of reconciliation and an embrace that breaks all the walls that had separated them for years. Physical touch is so important, isn't it? You felt that after the pandemic, you can hug a person now. These demonstrative acts of deep emotion are finally sufficient evidence to free Joseph's brothers from fear and unlock their voices so they can speak again. Now the final note that intimacy has been achieved is the ability to talk freely with the one they wronged jealousy and resentment are gone and miraculously replaced by easy and free speech that inquires and shares and encourages and builds up the walkie notes that the narrator however blanks the conversation as inconsequential to the reconciliation you know why intimacy is visceral not cerebral intimacy is visceral you can feel it it's not cerebral I think I shared in weeks previous about my year of depression, trying to reconcile people, was implicated in it, and for a solid year, the enemy just, I just felt his oppression and my own guilt and couldn't release it. I finally went on different things to get me through it. And it was amazing, the orchestration of events. I was in a bookstore with a brother. He grabs a book right out of the shelf and he shoves it into my chest. And he says, Here, read this. It's a big, thick novel. I, said, I have a hard time reading novels. He says, Get over it. <laughs> and it was Steinbeck's East of Eden. And so I just programmed myself to read 50 pages a day, and it ended up, it was my story. And I needed to learn something about myself before reconciliation could happen. And then at the end of a year I went on a prayer retreat and I just told God, look, I know you don't talk to me but I need to know I'm forgiven and don't waste my gifts. And I got home and a person called me and they said, the Lord spoke to me about you and I want to come over and tell you. I said, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about my sin. Tell me over the phone. She said, well, you're in a wilderness and if you come out your friends will heal you. It'll soon be over and God's with you. And I thought, are you kidding? God said my name to you? So she put it in a letter, and the very next week I got a letter from the person I'd wrong, and she said, I accept your apology. Immediately the satanic pressure lifted. But I still, there was no intimacy. Years later, I don't know how many years it was, I was in Stanford Hospital and with my granddaughter Emmy, and we were with a and we came out and we noticed, oh, there's a rabbi over here talking about Hanukkah. Would you like to hear that, Emmy? She says, yes. So we stood an extra 15 minutes. Now we came out the hospital door and there she was. She opened the door for me, coming in with her family. They hugged me. They said, they're so glad to see me. Where have I been? She took me to her husband's room where he was had surgery. They said, let's go bike riding together. Now it was visceral. Who is the God that does that, orchestrates life? It's a very beautiful moment. Well, in conclusion, I want to reconsider the character traits that formed in these brothers that made reconciliation possible and give glory to God who reshapes our personal history, causing us to relive our painful past with renewed and right spirit. In so doing, he faithfully conforms us to the image of his son. So let's look there at the traits of Judah. Look what happened to him. Being loyal to a family member even when they looked guilty. Number two, he allows the personal loss, the death of his two sons, to enlarge his heart for compassion rather than becoming resentful towards God. Three, he gives glory to God by owning up to sin and God's right to punish it. You know, when you want to reconcile with somebody, don't say, um, I'm sorry. That means nothing. Are you sorry for the consequences? Are you sorry that it happened? And don't say, I apologize. You need to name the sin and not rationalize it. Just name it and own it. Give it a name. I wronged you. Will you forgive me? That's what Judah does. And then, amazingly, he adopts the concerns of a parent even when they previously brought you pain. That's beautiful. Number five. Having faith that God is in control and doing bigger things in the midst of painful circumstances like a famine or a pandemic. Six, accepting that love can be irrational, unequal, and at times unjust. And seven, being willing to sacrifice your life for the life of another. You know, Judah didn't have to sacrifice his life, but the same word is used with Jonathan in respect to David. He made a pledge to David. You're not gonna go down, I'm gonna go down, David. And I, his, his life was bound up with him. And Jonathan did sacrifice his life for his brother. Beautiful story. Well, that's Judah, it's amazing. What struck me too about Judah on a broader level, he models the sacred role of being an advocate to those in authority on behalf of those who don't have a voice. And that's what Jesus does in the Gospels. Everywhere he goes, he just doesn't heal people. He brings them into the community as full members, like the hemorrhaging woman. She tries to secretly get healed. He stops the party and he finds out who she is, and then he says, calls her what, daughter. She has full membership brings her into the community. Advocacy is a very important thing in our culture, and I've seen how this works for the International Justice Mission. I've been to Washington, D.C. with Grace Kwame, advocating our senators and congresspeople for the rights of the enslaved, because they don't have a voice. It's a holy thing. Well, with this character, Judah becomes the leader of his family, and with it, his descendants, those are the people God's gonna choose to be the kings in Israel. And if God looks at leadership, the most important thing is character, not policy. Character, character, character. The heart of a king is one who serves the flock but is also willing to die for the flock. That's what we learn. And then there's traits that shape Joseph. Number one, humility from years of suffering, injustice. Two, Patience from years of waiting on God to fulfill His promises. Note the last phrase, His way. Three, giving up power and control for the sake of intimacy. Four, embracing feelings of compassion and tenderness, sensitivity, and most importantly, forgiveness. Five, reaching out to bridge the distance guilt has created in others. Six, being faithful to provide for parents and family when, they, when you have been more fortunate than they. It's a beautiful scene at the end, isn't it? I'm going to take care of you in Goshen. And seven, being willing to express deepest emotions of love with the family that wronged you. You never stop loving. These are all on the printed message, which will be online tomorrow, and you can, you don't need to take notes as Bruce Walkie writes, a dysfunctional family that allows these virtues to embrace it will become the light of the world. And may this be the PBC family. Amen. Well, you need to know this is going to be my last extended preaching series. I'm not retiring, but for my final years at PBC, uh, the board has asked me to focus on nurturing and training the next generation of pastors and preachers so I'll still be continuing my teaching and community building and classes along with pastoral care and I'll be available to preach as needed. I've loved preaching. Um, Not because I desire the limelight, but for the love I have felt for you and God's palpable presence that happens. Whenever I was privileged to share God's word with you. You're an incredible, incredible congregation.
0: You've
1: been I didn't finish, Dave. You're an incredible congregation, passionate for God's word, and generous beyond belief. So receive this benediction may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus make you increase and abound in love for one another and to all. And may he establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Amen. Amen. God bless you.